Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Can new technologies address environmental issues and competing worldviews? Leading global thinker Lynette Walworth discusses her work in the virtual and augmented reality sphere and the ways in which she brings together technological advances in ancient understandings, new media and old practices, electronics and the electricity of human touch. Hi, thanks. Um, Lovely to be here. I love coming to New Zealand and I am grateful for the invitation. I want to talk to you about... I was here about a year ago and I talked a lot about collisions, which was the first virtual reality work that I did. And I wanted to talk to you today more about a Wavana, which is really the follow-up but directly connected to collisions. So, but I thought I should give you a background about how I think about work and what it is essentially I'm trying to, to do or focus on. About this time last year, I convened a gathering uh, on Captiva Island at Robert Rauschenberg's estate um, with my friend Tabitha Jackson from the Sundance Institute. And we brought a group of women together who all come from different disciplines in order to talk about what could be the new narratives around climate change that would help us get beyond our kind of imperviousness about what's happening to our world. So there were scientists, there were historians, musicians, artists, photographers, philosophers, and we gathered to talk. And one day, uh, one of the women, Heather Ray, who began the Indigenous program at Sundance Institute, so some of you will know her, Heather told a really profound story that helps to place, I think, the kind of work that I'm doing and perhaps the kind of work some of you are doing, which is the work that stands between cultures who don't understand each other and where the lack of comprehension over the simplest of things creates disunity between us and where our work in this field can act as some sort of a strange, for me, technological bridge. So I've asked Heather if I could share that story here with you today, and she agreed. She said, in the formation of the contemporary United States, Heather's a Cree woman. There was a very important meeting that was to take place between the Cherokee Nation and the early what would become Americans. The Cherokee delegation arrived. There was an appointed time and place. The Cherokee nation arrived and the US delegation arrived and they were separated by, I imagine, a kind of uncomfortable distance while they waited for this meeting to occur, which was to try and see if there could be negotiations rather than warfare between them. The delegations waited for three days, both of them, and nothing happened. And I imagine those early US, what would become the US nation, those early peoples thinking what is happening, that these Cherokee people are not engaging with us, though they are here. Both went back to their respective elders 
And I imagine that those early Americans said, well, we sat for three days and they wouldn't speak to us, they wouldn't budge. There was no communication and so we can't negotiate. And the Cherokee warriors who were there went back. And when they were asked, they said, we waited for three days for the meeting to take place, but only half of their delegation ever showed up. So we left because clearly no decisions would be able to be made, by which they meant that there were only men and no women in the delegation opposite them. So for those two perspectives, we have cultural difference that impacts the founding of a nation, where the simplest forms of communication are lost, because we assume we know one another when we look at one another, and we just don't, depending on where we've come from and the cultures we've been born into. So my most recent works stand in that strange place of differences of understanding. The work collisions which I talked about about a year ago is Neri Morgan's story. Neri is a Madhu man. He saw an atomic test in outback South Australia in the 1950s pre-contact. So the Madhu, because of where they are in Australia, their land was not wanted for grazing or growing. They were left alone until the 1960s. But in the 1950s, Neri was walking with three members of his family through a trade route in the area that Britain held inside of Australia in order to carry out nuclear tests. And he saw, with no context, an atomic test. The Madhu had asked me to come and work with them some years before I heard this story. They'd asked me to bring the technologies I have in order to try and translate some of their understanding of the way they see their country. This is an attempt of an installation that we did together. On one side over there, the far side, you can see where the women have painted a huge collaborative painting of this area of Bungal where their community is. In the middle, you can see that painting coming together. On this side, you can see me scanning over a satellite image of the same area, roughly, that the women are painting. These viewpoints of difference using different technology are what they invited me there to try and show. And when I was with them, I heard Neri's story. He came into the art room where the women were painting. He knew I had been to Maralinga in 2001 and 2002, and he wanted to talk to me about what he had seen. This is him in the 1960s. He told me he had seen, he was hunting with his family members and he had seen this apparition. And I asked him, what did you think that was? He said, we thought it was the spirits of our gods rising up to speak with us. And then we saw the spirits had laid all the kangaroos on the ground as a gift to us of easy hunting. So we took those kangaroos and we ate them and the people were sick and the spirits left. It was many years later that Neri understood what it was he had seen. And that cultural difference of a collision of worlds is why the first work I made, Collisions, existed. And my thought 
was to place Neri in relation to Oppenheimer, who had developed that weaponry. A conversation that never happened, just like the one between the Cherokee Nation and the early Americans. So this is a scene from Collisions that shows that moment. So Collisions um, was supported by a residency with Sundance uh, New Frontiers that put me in a Palo Alto-based technological company, but enabled me then to access very contemporary technologies in order to place you through an immersive um, headset experience where Neri was to see as much as we could evoke what he saw, including the sensation of ash falling towards your face and of kangaroos flying about your feet. The effect of that work was that it managed to take Neri's story to the UN in New York, to the UN buildings in Geneva, to put it in front of groups at those buildings who were discussing the nuclear safety of the world. And one of the places it was taken to was the Skoll Forum for Social Entrepreneurs, which happens in Oxford every April. And at that forum was a chief of another community, Tashka Yawanawa of the Yawanawa. He and I had become friends when we had met at that gathering a couple of years before. And Tashka decided that he wanted to watch Collisions. He had an absolutely crystal clear idea when he viewed the work through a headset of how the technology could be of use to the Yawanawa. He said, it opens, it acts like medicine, as in for ayahuasca medicine or visioning medicine that the Yawanawa uses. It, helps, it opens a portal, you travel to a place you have never been, colors and sounds are intensified, you meet the ancestors, you are given a message, and then you return. We can use this. My friend, you're going to have to come to the Amazon. So Tashka's idea was so clear and his vision was so crisp about the way this technology was a poor version of the visioning technologies that the Yawanawa traditionally use, but that something of it could be of use to share something in this bridge space where my work hovers. And the story the Yawanawa wanted to tell was of this man, their old shaman, Tata. Tata was close to 100 when we began talking about filming him. But the story linked to Tata was this one, of the kind of cultural revitalization that had happened within the Yawanawa community after slavery and after missionaries. So this image that's furthest from me is the Yawanawa in the 19, early 1980s. That's their headdress and their paintings after the cultural losses that occurred from the prohibition of them acting out their cultural practices and speaking their language. And this image closest to me is the Yawanawa today. So the story about how that happened is what they wanted to share. And it's linked to these two women. The one who Awavana is about is Hushahu, furthest from me there. This is an image of the Yawanawa in the 1970s when they were reduced to 150 peoples. Because 
the missionaries had entered into the Amazon and were preventing people from speaking or practicing their culture. But in the same time, the 1940s, linked to a war effort to do with our, our battles, the rubber industry went into the Amazon because we didn't yet know how to create a version of rubber synthetically. And companies, big companies that we now know, Bridgestone, Firestone, went into the Amazon looking for this rubber that Amazonians had always been known to use. And whole communities were turned into slaves. So from the 1940s to the 1980s, the early 1980s, the Yawanawa were enslaved. And Hushahu was born during that period of time. So she didn't know how to speak Yawanawa and she didn't know those cultural practices except what happened in secret. The uni, the ayahuasca, was still known how to be mixed and made, but it wasn't allowed to be drunk publicly. Hushahu had a feeling as a child, however, despite all of these conditions of the Yawanawa society, she believed her destiny was to become a shaman. But in Yawanawa culture, no woman was allowed to drink the ayahuasca. No woman was allowed to participate in the ceremony. It was only for men. So she had a dream. Her father was the chief. And in secret, she used to, as a child, steal the ayahuasca and drink it privately. Having the strong vision experiences without a guide. She felt herself to be a shaman. And her life course was changed because she was enabled, able to convince that very old, very wise shaman, Tata, that that was in fact her destiny. And he risked his spiritual authority to train her. She spent 15 months in isolation with only her sister in training drinking and experiencing via other means all of the medicines that a shaman must know. When her community sent her off, they didn't expect her to survive. And Tata didn't know if she would survive. At one point, she began to hear songs in Yawanawa in her vision state. And when she would return from visioning, she began to sing these songs to Tata. He said, that's the anaconda song that's been missing. That's the frog song that had disappeared. So the culture returned in song, just as we heard this morning. And when song returned, so did the patterns that came with it. These were gone. The songs came back to Ushahu. She began to see the patterns. And the songs and the patterns revived Yawanawa society. And Tata understood that spirits can't be wrong. So if the spirits had come to Hushahu and given her the songs, then perhaps the Awanawa had been wrong about the way they had placed women in relation to spiritual practices. And if they had been wrong about women in relation to spiritual practices, then perhaps they had been wrong about the role of women in all leadership of their communities. And when Tata and Hushahu returned from the training, the Yawanawa changed every leadership role that they have. So now there are men and women leaders of every community. 
and there are women shamans and there are children drinking ayahuasca. We had met to discuss all of this at Sundance Institute to plan how we would film this in VR to share this incredibly powerful, incredibly positive story. And shortly after our training, our planning, we got word, I was in Australia, that Tata had become very ill. And could we quickly send in cameras so his last days could be shared? Because the Yawanawa believed that this work that needed to be sent out was linked to a prophecy they had about the way in future times peoples who didn't know them would come to understand them. So we sent VR cameras in and we filmed the last days of Tata. Then we returned to the community some months later in order to film the ceremonies. We had three canoe loads worth of just gear because there's a range of technologies that were the most immersive that I felt could help translate what the Yawanawa wanted to show. Because not only did they want to tell this story, they wanted to show the way they see reality. And that is linked to the ayahuasca state and what it teaches them. And so I carried a series of different tools that I thought could most help me to translate that into a lesser version. One of the things I took was a portable LiDAR scanner. We used to use LiDARs from planes. They collect hundreds and thousands of points of data a second. So this portable LiDAR scanner, we held a community meeting as soon as we arrived to show everyone everything we had brought in so that we could all work out how it should be used. So this portable LiDAR scanner, we could walk around the forest with it and it would collect, I think it's 400,000 points per second of point cloud data which then we can use to make an incredibly realistic version of what we've just captured, or we can decimate those points and make them feel ethereal. But all of it is totally accurate. We took several cameras in, some low-light cameras, an Ozo camera, Canon cameras, Sanyo cameras, depending on what was needed for the different states. Um, because a lot of the ceremonies happened at night, and we needed to be able to capture those with clarity in this headset experience that you were going to have so that you felt yourself to be there. I interviewed Hushahu. She talked about where she had stayed. She talked about the history of her experience with the training. And then we talked about what needed to be filmed. And essentially what the Yawanawa wanted to show was their ceremonies the ones now that everyone participates in. So we did a rehearsal. They, they, they demonstrated the ceremony. We filmed it and then viewed it. And then the Yawanawa dressed themselves in preparations for the way they wanted to be seen. Then we made the transition to the ceremonial place. But amongst the technologies I brought with me was the ability to film fluorescence in the natural environment. I've worked for some years with this scientist, Dr. Anya Salih, whose job it's been to understand what is the purpose of the fluorescent gene in coral. But Anya believed that there would be fluorescence in the Yawanawa forest. And so she came on this 
journey with us, bringing blue torches and yellow filters, which we had to put on our cameras. And every night she would go out with big boots on, her and her guide, Anubi, and my friend, Jen, with blue torches looking in the forest to see if they could see anything that responded to the blue light. They found caterpillars, they found spiders, they found beetles with multicolours, and the women, when they looked at those, said, oh, uni, these are the colours the Yawanawa see when they are in their trance state. We just had to use a different technology to be able to see them for ourselves. And they took us to their very important tree, the grandmother tree, which is the grandmother of their forest. And Anya was able to get little scrapings that allowed her to see the colours of the communities, the mycorrhizal communities that exist in the grandmother tree, because the tree itself is so old. It was difficult having a little kind of science experiment happening within the Amazon amongst all this other technology. It was like a feat what we were trying to do. But all of, this, all of it made sense in terms of trying to translate one experience into another experience. When Hushahu had her very first most important vision, the vision occurred to her as a butterfly, a blue morpho butterfly, which is from the Yawanawa forest. So that was sort of our most important icon to, to make meaning from. So this is Anya scanning the wings of that butterfly in order that we can see the colours that exist within it in reality. And this is her showing the way those colours both reflect and absorb light. So all of these tools helped me gather kind of fragments of important visual content that could then be built into the experience later. Then we all crossed the bridge in the Mutum community in order to go into ceremony. This is that bridge. So the Yawanawa have built a bridge that transitions from everyday reality that you cross when you are to go into ceremony this very long, very difficult bridge to, to, to pass, so that you really have to go through an effort in order to get to ceremony. And that's where the grandmother is. And now it's where Tata's memorial is. So the Yawanawa wanted to film the ceremony because of the consciousness around the filming and the idea that this was a work that was going to be sent to us, she's seeding a message for us in that offering there. And that's what's going to be sent out. I had to bring those elements back, thinking of all of these aspects that had been handed to me there and construct a work that could make sense using these contemporary technologies. When I travelled back, I went to the Technicolor Experience Centre where I had another residency given to me by Sundance New Frontiers so that I could work with all of this that I had was holding and pull it into inside the work. So instead of using a portable headset, we decided to develop this work using a Vive. So it's tethered, but you can do so much more within this more, uh, within a punchier computer that, that is running the work as opposed to a, a portable device that's holding, that you're holding information on a phone. I was in communication with Tashka. This is Tashka at the Technicolor Experience Centre and Husha, who was, who was in Mutum. And I want to show you now just one scene which gives you an idea of how those elements came together 
inside of the work. It's difficult showing um, any immersive work like this because when you're sitting inside of it, you're inside the world of it and it's happening right in front of you, which is as it should be. But maybe you can imagine something from it if I show this to you now. Um, this work is using gaze activation in the headset. So what that means in terms of the immersive experience is that the, the work is responding to where you are looking. And where you look inside this work, it will reveal things to you because it's tracking your vision. In the second part of this work, we now have it responding to your breath so that where you speak, you move those LiDAR particles away from you in accordance with how, how much you are speaking. The whole point is to version this idea of the Yawanawa that in the vision state, what you come to know is that everything is aware of you. So we could take those pieces of information and translate from the way the physical world could respond to you to a point cloud world that responds to you, travel you up inside that tree and lift you up into the vision state. We also took the butterfly that was the important icon for Hushahu and the women made bracelets, which we developed an AR app for, that connects to data from the rainforest. Um, our NGO partner is called Amazon. The, um, the health of the butterfly is directly related to the levels of deforestation in the Amazon day by day. So if the levels go up beyond what we've accepted as a normal, her wings will deteriorate or burn. We took this finished work, a 17-minute interactive piece that responds to where you look, the armbands that respond to what's happening in the forest now. And we went to the Amazon, uh, we went to Sundance. Hushahu and Tashka came. Hushahu went into ceremony before she left the Amazon which meant that she arrived in a state of readiness to transfer what she felt was of her spiritual practice into the technology that we were using. So we had to close everything off so she could come and bless with a special leaf every piece of technology that was driving this story. Because inside this story are the spirits of her world. And then we began to show it. People sitting on hammock chairs, completely immersed in that ceremony and that story. I've been there quite a few times and Robert Redford always comes and looks at the work in the New Frontiers section. This is, to be honest, the only piece that he's ever watched of mine all the way through. And we had a really wonderful discussion about it because he said he'd been fearful of this technology, that it would remove people from the natural world. And he was interested in the fact that this work had brought you to a closer place of understanding the Yawanawa's particular relationship to their forest. But for me, the most important event at, the Sun at Sundance this year happened in a whiskey bar around 10 p.m. one of the nights that we were there where there was a gathering of the activists, the filmmakers, the lawyers who were all the water protectors trying to prevent the pipeline. And they'd asked Hushahu to come into the space and to give them a blessing. It was like a big and challenging moment to walk into a whiskey bar in Park City at 10 p.m. and have someone do a blessing. It was raucous and 
crazy, but Hushahu Tashka spoke about how first the Yawanawa had to free themselves from slavery, had to decolonize their own minds, and then demarcate their own country, and how now they hold 200,000 hectares of Amazonian forest in protection. And after he said this, he said, Hushahu understands your struggle, that you think things are lost when they are hidden. And she's calling upon the spirits of this country that you should not be obstructed anymore. So you felt the quiet come into the room. And the next night we were having dinner and a contingent of those water protectors, including my friend Heather Ray, came by to meet with the, with the Yawanawa and to talk to them about how they had achieved this cultural revival and what were some of the methods that they had used. It was a sharing between them of different processes. We took the work then to the World Economic Forum um, in Davos. I've been showing work there for some years now. And this year, at the end of the gathering, Klaus Schwab had decided to end the World Economic Forum with a talk by four artists. And um, we appeared on that stage an hour and a half after Donald Trump had left it. So there were around 65 world leaders in the room. When I spoke about my work, showed this image of Hushahu, and at the end of the gathering, she was introduced <laughs> to those in the room. But there, for me, the most important meeting was this one, with the Yawanawa history of the removals or the prevention of their practices being enacted by the missionaries. Hushahu was invited to a gathering of spiritual leaders as a spiritual leader herself. And in that gathering, the spiritual leaders handed a candle to one another in order that they could do a blessing in their own tradition. This is a cardinal from the Vatican handing the candle to Hushahu. You can see the delight on her face about what that moment means for her. And then she prays. I'm showing you these things, I guess, because I'm trying to talk about what can be the purpose of this work in ethereal moments or maybe even moments that aren't public, things that happen where change occurs. It's to do with the thoughts that are seeded inside of the work. It's to do with the intention, in this case, the intention of the Yawanawa. And their idea that there was a white mountain that existed between them and the Western world and that they had a prophecy that a space would be made that made it more transparent so that they could be seen and known, and their way of seeing the world could be understood. We took the work to Venice just recently. She was comfortable on the gondolas. Gondolas. We walked the red carpet, which was an intimidating red carpet to be on. And afterwards, people were thinking that she would consider it to be frivolous. I was holding her hand at one point because she was very nervous. But when she got into the middle of the bank of photographers, this is us walking away, she dropped my hand and she went into ceremony and people continued to photograph her. And afterwards I asked her why and she said because she held up her community inside a site of Western culture and power. And in those moments things are changed because there's a merging, there's a porous world that is made. So what does this mean for me 
in terms of this kind of work. It's a strange and precarious road that I'm walking with invitations from different communities to bring in technologies in order to carry out a story that is translated into a form that will hopefully create a reverberation. And I respond to those requests partly because I really do think there is something in this technology, just as Tashka saw. Because what we do know for now is that in these immersive experiences, particularly with the most powerful of VR, people are not recalling those events as though they watched a film. They recall those experiences as though they were in a dream. It is held in our memory as something we did. Maybe not in the reality we know, but in a reality that is familiar to us. And that's the power of the form, even if it's just for now. Because as we create technologies, we change our brains and our brains respond to those changes. Eventually, it might be that we all get very used to VR and we all come to realise it's separate from us. And then this effect that I'm talking about, about the ability to translate and perhaps change our minds, maybe that will go. But for the moment, it's worth the tremendous effort that it takes to wrangle these technologies in order to show a world that doesn't look like the one we know, but is completely real to the person who's sharing it. There's a study that's been happening in Yale University for some years now using bespoke virtual reality as well as electrical transmitters in order to try and help paraplegics to walk. We can't yet know what is the combination of effects of the VR with these electrical impulses. But what we do know is that every single person in the study has gained muscle movement. So our minds are shifted by our thoughts. When people look down in this experiment, they see their own legs walking. And whilst none of them have yet learnt to walk, some have gained control over parts of their body that had been lost to them for years. I personally have to think about why I am doing this work because these stories are not my stories to tell. They are translations I am making on behalf of others. But I also had to ask myself why a repeated invitation came from very remote communities to make that kind of an effort and to create the works I do. I personally link it to my own history and mostly I don't talk about it. But my childhood experiences led to moments of flight from my own body because of illness and trauma that meant sometimes I could feel myself to be completely alive sitting in a tree, having just fallen from a horse, whilst at the same time seeing my grandfather, another old man, holding what I knew to be my own child's body in his hands. The ability to see the dualities of existence, the experiences that lead us to the work we do, for me, being revived and resuscitated takes me on the path that I'm now on, which means it's not that strange for me to think. There are whole worldviews that we can't see. 
but that could be open to us. During a phone call with Tashka one day discussing what the work needed to hold, I said to him, isn't it, this is when Tata was still alive. I said, isn't it going to be strange for Tata to be addressing a camera? Because I know when he's in ceremony, he would normally be focused on the person just right in front of him. And I'm worried that he's going to find it uncomfortable and, and it's going to lack importance for him if he has to address a camera. Because VR is really where you place the camera is where you feel yourself to be when you're in the work. So I was expressing my concerns about the technology being in that place and Tata's ability to relate to it because he would be sending the ceremony out to us through the camera. There was silence on the other end of the phone, which is always helpful and terrifying for me because I know I've said something really inappropriate and I don't yet know what that is. So after an uncomfortable period of time, Tashka said, Lynette, when Tata goes into ceremony, he prays first for the person in front of him, then he prays for the community, then he prays for the forest, then he prays for you, for the holy world. He's always been praying for you. Maybe you didn't know that. Even today when I say it, it makes me sad because it was a gap in our cultures where the Yawanawa felt themselves to be communicating with us and we had no idea because we act as though we know the world, but we only know our frame of it. And this frameless, immersive possibility of virtual reality for the moment can help us stand close to one another. And perhaps it can change our minds and perhaps it can open us up. And for that reason, I keep going. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I took it because it was important to, t to take it. Uh, but, you know, I took it at the end of the ceremony of, so the, the, the filming night. I'd been bitten by a wasp. I had to continue to film. And then at the end of filming, it was, we were all, it was, it was, uh, we were all offered to take the, uh, to take the uni. I will go back and, and share time with the Yawanawa myself that do, when it doesn't involve me filming. But um, actually, in truth, I didn't need to take it to see all those things because the, I, I think that's what I'm trying to explain. In some ways, the channels that get opened in you via different experiences can provide that opening to a way of seeing, which is, I think, the reason the invitation was made to me to kind of be a conduit for that. Um, and the Yawanawa themselves, though, are now completely shocked and surprised at how well that has translated into the Awavana experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your work, um, working with Michael and Yes. From the day. Is that duality? Or duality? No, that's called evolution of fearlessness. Yes. <laughs> So this is an early work, uh, uh, 2000 and, 
I don't know, six, called Evolution of Fearlessness, which was an installation that used uh, basically an IR trigger to trigger a responsiveness in um, the video playback system. And in this installed environment, you could go up to a small portal and place your hand on a little kind of what, what, what looked like a little kind of puff of smoke and it would cause a reaction in the system which would cause one of the women I'd filmed, these were 11 women who were all had survived, who all now live in Australia but all had survived extremes of torture and trauma and dislocation through, through various wars all over the world and a stolen generations woman from Australia. And so you would place your hand there and we would cause the video interaction where one of the women would step forward and she would place her hand on your hand. So it caused this intimate moment of video touch. And that works still tours. Um, and for that, those women, again, it's a communal work. It's a community of survivors. And those women see themselves as um, a community of survivors who exist, whose stories exist in that work. So that was... The idea of gesture and how people most instinctively want to react to a work has been very helpful training to think, to go through the process of then working in virtual reality where actually you want people to instinctively look somewhere. You want to guide them in that process given that inside a VR headset you can look anywhere you want at any time. So the trainings of working in physical 360 uh, have helped me a lot, I think, in guiding the the, ex, the experience of the of the participant in these you know later forms of work. Yeah. So um, collisions again has led to several other invitations. Um, one I've begun filming, which is in Mongolia, again, it's linked to a shaman and the spirit horses of the Gobi Desert or Mongolia that were um, these horses which are not used for riding. They're the taki horses, um, which were extinct in the wild in Mongolia and have been re revitalised via a kind of program, a global program that is now bringing some of these spirit horses back into Mongolia to be released back in the wild. So we've filmed, we've filmed already the release of one of those spirit horses. Um, and that work of this horse being sent from Prague on a plane, it's, gonna, it's being on a plane for 30 hours and the, the horse being kind of sedated and then carefully put in this box where it doesn't know what's happening to us but it's actually being taken to its <laughs> homeland. That's, um, that's already been filmed and so that's the next work to finish. All of them very linked to place, but virtual reality is so powerful for place, sense of place, uh, because you can't but feel that you are there. Yes, I mean, I've never been, I've, ne I've always hopped from technology to technology. I'm always driven by the story. I, I don't mean I've hopped to follow technologies because I love the technology. I love the story. And I try and find the technology that will be a match for the story. So um, this, these, these works will, will kind of fit in a little pocket of works. Um, 
I don't think there's any, but I do think these technologies are particularly powerful. I don't think there's any purpose. There's no good thing that comes from chasing something because it's new. I care very much about the heart of the work and I don't want people distracted by the technology. But I, at the moment, what these technologies are able to do, I can't do in another way. So whilst I need them, I will use them. How do we get to experience the work? Well, a wavener's going to be in Sydney, which doesn't help you much, I suppose, in November. I mean, these works tour, at the moment, so virtual reality uh, works. Most film, film festivals show virtual reality works now in... Um, some in competition and some, and it's just become in, in the last year, you know, there's a plethora of film festivals showing virtual reality. The trouble is I think that we haven't necessarily found the best way to experience the, you know, to show the work in a way that gives you, gives you the time to take it in. So my goal will be to place these kind of works in galleries and museums where they can run for about three months or six months as opposed to five days in a festival where everyone's crazily busy and rushing from that VR experience to this VR experience, which, you know, for me, that old shaman places his last days inside of this work. For you to jump from that and then go and be on a roller skate somewhere, you know, two minutes later, is not, for me, that's not the environment that is ideal. So uh, I now have to go through the process of um, put, putting this work into galleries, but that's hopefully where you'll find them. Hi. Um, how do you go about getting funding for these international projects? Uh, well, I... Um, chose a producer who was based in the US because the residencies I had were in the US. Um, and, but everything comes down to good relationships and building relationships. And so I think, I mean, in this field where you're always working with something new, as in you're telling people about something you haven't made yet and maybe no one has seen done yet. Um, and so you have to have a relationship of faith and trust. So to repeat, have to build and to build strong relationships with whoever likes your work is the thing that I think is the most helpful thing to do. And to find those places that support through labs and workshops um, this emerging form. Because we need good storytellers there. And the funding for VR right now is difficult to get. But there are gaps there, you know, and I think so just find the gap and, and head there and build relationships because I think there's much to still be uncovered um, about where this technology will take us and what it will help us experience. Yeah. You're working um, with communities, a group of people that have stories, and you're choosing, you're choosing a technology that is a, a really strong well, um, it depends on how you present it. So with collisions, um, I always, uh, right from the start, fought to have a synchronisation system attached so that we showed it always in a, group, collect, in a collective setting because it relates to the community more powerfully. So even at those places that you saw at Sundance and Davos, we were synchronising 15 or 20 headsets together and up to 200 headsets together. 
Collisions had the first presentation in the Egypt, Egypt, Egyptian theatre in, in Sundance with 200 people watching it. Um, you can do that with, and so, so it's always with this, it's around the edge of the technology where, where, where it is now and where, where it will get to. So right now I can't synchronise the headsets, uh, the tethered headsets, but in a short space of time I know that there will be a, a, a a mobile phone powerful enough or, or, or a portable headset powerful enough to run this experience and then I will just synchronise those headsets. So partly in doing this work it's always about the challenge of the moment and doing what you can that is possible now but holding in your mind that the long game and, um, and knowing that with technology that long game might be like t two months away. Yeah. Um, your story seemed, um, was, seemed like a Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That was the challenge of the work, and I talked with Hushahu about that. She said uh, the technology is just thought. So, um, and when she experienced uh, this work, uh, she wept when she went into that tree. She went into ceremony when she went into a later state that I didn't show you. So the the mirroring of that for for her and for the Yawanau who have seen it is, you know, it's like I said, it's an it's an approximation, but it's an approximation that is holding something truthful at its heart. I think because of the way it was invited to be made, and you know, I've brought work here. I brought that work, Evolution of Fearlessness, here to. Auckland some years ago and I got a message when the work was here from a friend, a Maori friend. She said, so some of my elders have seen your work. They said there's spirits in your work and they haven't been welcomed properly. So we need to welcome them. Can you close off the exhibition so we can do that? So, you know, ayahuasca is a technology. Painting's a technology. You know, Leonardo, when he used oil paint, it was a technology and he painted The Last Supper but I was trying to hold something at its heart using this thing which is of us because we're making it and we're making it because we're trying, we've thought of it. It's just our thought in a physical form and so that's what I'm trying to wrangle. Yeah. Uh, there is um, now projection technologies in your wearables, so the immersive projection technologies. To, with a volumetric capture or, yeah. So you can sit there and be 30 people in a room and that can be Yes, yes. No, I, no, I, I, this, this work is in two parts and right now I want what I can deliver through this headset that I can't deliver any other way in terms of the responsiveness in the system. When someone says to me, you know, when I'm in this uni state, I look at the tree, I need to know the tree is looking back at me. I can do that in this one-on-one -on -one experience in this headset that I can't do in the other forms. Because of the requirements of this work, this was the exact right technology to use. I know. Hi, Kayleen. I, I just want to really congratulate you on the work you are doing. Um, you, you transferred a very black bedroom and a very black hotel during the Sydney Gold Festival. You came across town and there we were, and there was your work. And I, I think... 
can't underestimate the power of it. It's an extremely powerful, truthful storytelling. So thank you so much for coming here and talking about it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.